Good afternoon. It is a joy and a blessing to be here. It's encouraging to see many visitors with us. We're encouraged by your presence. want to invite you uh, to be with us anytime. Our, our goal uh, in everything that we do is to follow God's will within the scriptures. I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 12, if they aren't already open there. That's where we'll be focusing today. In the Old Testament, God directed his people to celebrate a variety of holy days and festivals throughout the year. Uh, if you've been reading with us through our Bible reading, we just got through numbers uh, reading about the Passover, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Booths. In fact, Carl preached about some of those feasts just a few weeks ago. But under the New Covenant, God has only given us one feast, uh, what Paul in 1 Corinthians calls the Lord's Supper, uh, corresponding with what uh, John calls the Lord's Day later on at the beginning of the book of Revelation. And we see the early church on the first day of every week coming together to take part in that memorial, that sacrificial, that communion feast as, as we have here today. And it is indeed true that this time of year uh, on our calendars is the time of year that Jesus originally instituted that meal, uh, is the time of year that he uh, was betrayed, crucified, buried, and raised again. Uh, but nowhere in scripture do we see God instituting Easter as a divine holiday. Uh, it's not something um, he wanted us to purposefully remember just one day a year. In fact, he wanted us to remember it every Lord's Day. There's a very real sense in which, for the Christian, every first day of the week is Easter. Uh, every first day of the week is the day on which Jesus rose from the dead, uh, a day in which God wants us to remember his sacrifice and his victory over the grave. Uh, and so we can be very thankful that during this time of year, many throughout our country are remembering the Lord. Uh, and certainly there's no better thing that we could talk about today than to talk about his sacrifice for us and his victory over the grave. The resurrection ultimately is the linchpin and mainstay of the gospel. It is what the apostles time and time again, really in every sermon in the book of Acts, keep coming back to. It's the means by which Jesus is declared to be the son of God with power, Romans chapter 1 and verse 4 says. And it's the primary evidence for his claim as deity, his identity as the Messiah, the Savior of the world. If you've been keeping up with the Bible reading, you started reading this past Friday in Matthew chapter 12 in this passage that Jonathan just read for us. I want to read again there in verse 39. It says, But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Verse 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What point is Jesus making by this parallel with Jonah? And why does he say this is the only sign that will be given to that generation? Ultimately, what can we learn today by looking into the mirror of God's word as we consider this passage? I want to start off by noticing in this passage uh, that 
hear Jesus' initial response in verse 38 uh, when they ask him, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. His initial response is that no sign will be given to an evil and adulterous generation. Why why is it that Jesus doesn't just go ahead and say, oh, you want a sign? Well, let me go ahead and work a miracle here. Uh, Well, it's not everywhere throughout the scripture that sign seeking is seen as a negative thing. Not everywhere in scripture that sign seeking is rebuked, but it depends on the attitude in the heart of the one seeking. Uh, The question for us is, are we seeking truth or simply an excuse for unbelief? In the Old Testament, there are other people who sought signs from the Lord. In fact, Genesis chapter 15, you may remember where it's first said of Abraham, he believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Later on in that same passage, as God has promised to him to make his descendants as the stars of the heaven and to give them this land to possess... Abraham says in Genesis 15, verse 8, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And what God does is he causes Abraham to to see this vision where God comes down in the form of a flaming fire and passes through the different parts of the sacrifices that he had laid out to cut a covenant, as the Old Testament would would indicate, and to prove that, yes, in fact, he was uh, intending and fully uh, guaranteeing that he would bring about this promise for Abraham. So Abraham, who believed God, asked for a sign, and it was given. In fact, you can look in the book of Judges as well, Judges chapter 6. You remember Gideon, who uh, is approached by an angel and told that he is going to be the means by which God is going to deliver his people. And he asks, how am I to know God ends up devouring the the sacrifice before him in the fire and the angel goes up within it. But even after that, uh, Gideon tests the Lord as he's preparing for battle. He sets out a a fleece on the ground and says, God, if if you are in fact going to give me the victory, let the fleece fleece be wet and all the ground be dry. The next day, uh, next night, he comes again and asks that the, the fleece be dry and that the ground be wet with dew. God gave those signs to Gideon when he asked for a sign. So why is it here in Matthew chapter 12 that when the people say, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you, he refuses to give them a sign? Well, this wasn't the request of an honest truth seeker. This was the request of an evil and adulterous generation, Jesus says in verse 39. This was not the request of a weak and struggling faith, but a willful unbelief, skepticism, and hardness of heart. In fact, Jesus had already given sign after sign after sign for these people. And yet they always found a way to reject or ignore it. You may remember in John chapter 3, when Nicodemus, one of the Pharisees, comes to Jesus. He says in John chapter 3 and verse 2, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus knew. Nicodemus saw the signs. And if you even read through the Gospel of Matthew, we've seen Jesus do many signs, even in the sight of some of the scribes and Pharisees. Back in chapter 9 and verse 3, when Jesus came to heal the paralytic man uh, and tells the man that his sins are forgiven him, the the Pharisees respond uh, that he's blaspheming because only God can forgive sins. 
evidently ignoring the fact that Jesus then goes on to give them a sign that he does, in fact, have that authority by healing this paralytic man. In chapter 12 and in verse 14, Jesus heals a man with a withered hand. And how did the Pharisees uh, react after that? It says in chapter 12 and verse 14, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. They weren't interested in the sign. In fact, when they saw the sign, they were all the more bent on his destruction. And twice already in the book of Matthew, they've accused Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons, by Satan, essentially. In Matthew chapter 9 and verse 34, we see that accusation. And again, very recently in this context, in chapter 12 and in verse 24, uh, they accuse him of only casting out uh, the demons by demonic power itself. And so it's not that Jesus hadn't given them sufficient signs. It's not that they were seeking genuinely uh, for proof to, to bolster their weak faith. No, they were here ultimately seeking more material for which to accuse Jesus. They want him to, to jump through every hoop and obstacle that their stubborn faithlessness would demand. And even then, they're still determined to reject him in the end, no matter how he performs. The question for us is how do we approach Jesus? How do we approach the scriptures? Are we honestly seeking truth? Are we seeking for our faith to be strengthened like Abraham or like Gideon? Are we ready to surrender to whatever God tells us in obedience, no matter what it may de- he may demand? Or are we simply going to the scriptures to find validation for our own beliefs? Ready to mold whatever we read into our predetermined worldview or way of life. Jesus never turned away the scrutiny of honest truth seekers. He did not demand blind acceptance in the absence of evidence. In fact, John chapter 10, John chapter 10 and verse 37 and 38. Here, as Jesus is challenged, he says in verse 37, if I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Jesus says, if I don't give you evidence, then don't believe me. It's not that Jesus is rejecting the scrutiny of anybody who is honestly seeking for confirmations, honestly seeking for truth. But Jesus knows the heart of this uh, wicked and adulterous generation. To the sincere, he gives ample evidence. At the end of the Gospel of John, you may remember John in conclusion of writing his Gospel in John 20, verse 30 and 31, says that many other signs Jesus did, but these have been written that we may believe. At the very end of his Gospel, chapter 21 and verse 25, he said, if everything that Jesus did was written down, the world itself could not contain it. Jesus did many signs, gave ample proof to those who were willing to see it. In John 7 and in verse 17, notice what Jesus says is the difference. John 7 and verse 17, Jesus says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. That's the difference. 
If anybody is willing to do his will, if anybody is genuinely seeking to understand who God is, to understand what God's will is, to uh, understand what the truth is, then they will know. They will see. The evidence will be given. Is our will to do God's will? Is that why you're here today? Is that why we have our Bibles open? Or do we have some other purpose? I think people often have a tendency to find what it is they are looking for in God's word. Maybe they're looking for a book of myths and legends. That's what they'll find. Maybe they're looking for a magic eight ball or a fortune teller. Well, they they can use it in that way. Maybe they're looking for a self-help book with relationship advice or an affirmation of one's own values and goals in life. Maybe a system to bolster their own self-righteousness. Maybe they're looking for inspirational quotes, chicken soup for the soul. Or are we looking for truth about who God is and what he desires from our lives? That's what the Bible ultimately is. That's what it's intended to reveal. And yet we can twist it and mold it to really give us whatever it is that, that we're wanting from it. Are we genuinely seeking truth? If we are, Jesus will not turn us away. <laughs> to those who honestly are seeking truth, that is what we will find within God's word. But Jesus could have just left it there. In fact, in Mark's account, one of the times that the Pharisees come to him and ask for a sign, Jesus says, no sign will be given and leaves it at that. Uh, that's Mark 8 and verse 12. But here, as in uh, Matthew 16 as well, Jesus goes on and says, and even an adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Despite their hardness of heart, despite the fact that they're not genuinely looking for the truth in this, Jesus, in his long suffering, is going to give them a sign, is going to point forward ultimately to the greatest sign that will overshadow all others, the sign that defines his very ministry here on earth, what he calls the sign of Jonah. Above all other signs, the resurrection powerfully declared Jesus to be the Son of God. It is the sign that the apostles kept going back to again and again. Because in this sign, Jesus doesn't just exercise control over the elements of nature or over somebody else's sickness or, or ailment. Jesus shows that he has the keys of death and of Hades and that he can chart a path through his own death to lead us to the glory of eternal life. But the parallel that Jesus makes is with Jonah. He calls this the sign of Jonah. There in verse 40, he says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, for, for those who have been infected by the modern spirit of skepticism, uh, this reference might cause us to cringe a little bit. Jonah and the big fish, really? Uh, you know, that we might think, well, that, that's a nice story for a children book, kind of, kind of like Geppetto and Monstro and Pinocchio. Um, but ask any marine biologist, honestly, ask any fourth grade science student, and they could tell you that that's just not possible, right? Uh, 
sea creatures don't have big hollowed out dormitories for mouths uh, with an ample oxygen supply on reserve just in case a visitor needs to stop in and stay for a few days. And while we're at it, if we want, uh, again, speaking from a, a skeptical mindset of our modern culture, we might say, well, what about Noah and the flood? You know, the, the idea that the water is, is covering the very highest peaks, there's not enough water in all the world to do that. We, and, and the idea that every single animal made it on this little boat and they didn't eat one another and they survived for over a year. And if you've been reading your Bible reading, you, you might have come across a few things that, that could make you feel that same way. Genesis chapter 30, when Jacob puts the uh, peeled rods in front of the, the flocks that are mating, and all of a sudden they start bearing spotted and speckled because they were mating next to these rods. Or maybe you read in Numbers chapter 5 about the test of the water of bitterness, whether or not the woman had committed adultery and she'll drink this water and it'll cause her, her loin to, to fall away. How would you respond to that? If we look at the story of Jonah, we look at the story of Noah, we look at these other accounts within the scripture and we say, that, that just, that doesn't make sense. Uh, not to any rational thinker. Would you find yourself trying to make an attempt to give a scientific explanation for all of these things? I think sometimes that's how we respond. Maybe you'd claim that the factual reliability of scripture doesn't really affect the goodness of the moral truths that it reveals. I think without even realizing what we have done is we have let the world set the parameters for our evidence in such a way that completely invalidates the miraculous to begin with. Do we need a scientific explanation for how a man can be three days in the grave and suddenly raise again? Do we need a scientific explanation for how clay put on a man's eyes can suddenly cause him to see? Do we need a scientific explanation for how God can bring the world into existence in just six days? Of course not. Yes, these things are impossible, and that's the point. We shouldn't be looking at these stories trying to come up with some scientific explanation. Now, certainly, we can see some scientific evidence in, in archaeology and in other fields that can give credence to the historical record of Scripture. We can see fish fossils in the mountains. We can see other things of that nature that can help lend credence to these things. But these things aren't possible from a physical and natural standpoint, and that's the point. This is the power of God. Yes, Jonah cannot live for three days inside a fish. Not without God's power. Just like Jesus can't come out of the grave without the power of Almighty God. Without even realizing it, we have very often adopted the viewpoint of modern skepticism that demands a scientific, natural explanation for everything we find in the scriptures. If we truly believe that this is written from the mind of Almighty God, shouldn't we expect that it would continuously tell us about things that defy the laws of nature? Are we open to the supernatural evidence we claim to seek? The impulse to make a natural explanation for all of these things is the impulse of an ungodly world. 
an unbelieving world. John chapter 12, verse 29, when the crowd hears the voice of God speak to Jesus from the heavens, they need a natural explanation. It's the thunder. Acts chapter 2, verse 13, the Jews on the day of Pentecost that heard the tongue speaking of the apostles, they need a natural explanation. Well, they're just drunk with wine. Matthew 28, verse 13, the chief priests try to explain away the empty tomb by claiming the disciples came and stole the body. Let's be careful that we aren't falling into the mindset of the unbelieving world by trying to bring up natural explanations for all of these things. No, we have faith in a supernatural, almighty creator. And existence itself, the witness of all creation, ultimately witnesses to the supernatural. Romans chapter 1, verse 19 and 20 says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. The very fact that you are here today, that the world exists around you, is evidence of the supernatural. What, what do we mean? Well, think about it this way. If nothing comes from nothing the law of cause and effect, and there is something, there must have always been something. Something doesn't come from nothing, therefore there must have always been something, yet this eternal something cannot be physical or natural. It would defy the laws of nature by being beyond the limits of cause and beyond the limits of time. Therefore, the only explanation for existence itself is something supernatural, something beyond the limits of cause and time, ultimately something divine. I think that's what Romans 1 verse 20 is telling us, uh, that the very fact that the world exists witnesses to the eternal power and divine nature of the one who brought it into being. We need to get past being ashamed of the supernatural claims of Scripture. We can't let the world convince us that scientific natural explanations are the only things that logical thinking people should accept. Reasonable, truth-seeking people will recognize that existence itself calls for faith in the supernatural. And we should not be surprised if a book claiming to be breathed out from the mouth of Almighty God himself makes frequent claims that defy the laws of nature. But as we continue here in Matthew chapter 12, we need to again challenge our faith by asking, are we blinded by our proximity to the gospel? What do we mean here? Well, if you look in Matthew chapter 12, and we continue here, you see Jesus' Jesus's challenge to his hearers doesn't stop there. Notice what he says in verse 41 and 42. He says, the men of Nineveh, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. In contrast to the Jewish rabbis and religious elite among the Pharisees, 
who pride themselves as descendants of Abraham, here Jesus lifts up the people of Nineveh who responded to the preaching of Jonah, lifts up the queen of Sheba who came from the very farthest reaches of the Arabian Peninsula as positive examples, shaming and condemning his own people for their faithless rejection. Why is it that we often see God's people, God's covenant people, being the last people to accept his message? Why is it that we see people out in Nineveh, the corrupt Assyrian capital, people from far away who have to travel a long distance, why is it that they are often the people that are most receptive? I think we see that concept today as well. Often it is the most ungodly and broken people, furthest removed from the morality of the gospel, who in our thinking, so to speak, have the furthest to travel to come to Jesus, who accept his message most readily. Jesus talks about this concept again later on in Matthew 13 as he goes to his hometown of Nazareth. In Matthew 13 and verse 53, it says, And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. What was the problem here? Well, they say, well, we know his father. We know his mother. We, we know his brothers and sisters. Um, they aren't anybody special. They aren't any better than us. Just another lowly working family of Nazareth. Who does he think he is? Sometimes the closer we are to the gospel, the more our pride gets in the way. We think of ourselves as, as, as pretty good people. And so when the gospel tells us that we need to repent, that we need to change, we think, well, wait a second, I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. I think that's certainly what is going on with the Pharisees here. They consider themselves to be uh, among the, the most qualified people to, to receive the Messiah uh, in fact, they expect that when he comes, they'll probably pat them on the back for how righteous they've been. Um, they had spent their entire lives trying to look good, religiously speaking, and now Jesus is making them look bad. They had built their reputations on their strict obedience of the law, and now Jesus tells them they need to repent just as much as the people of Nineveh needed to repent. Just as much as the sinners and tax collectors. Who does he think he is to treat us that way? Yet it was the people of Nineveh who were so corrupt and broken that they didn't need someone to tell them twice they needed to repent. They saw their moral depravity for what it was and humbled themselves before God. Where do we fall on that spectrum? I don't know what your background is 
specifically. But I know for me, uh, growing up, going to church, uh, certainly not through the fault of my parents, but through my own fault, I spent my entire childhood thinking I was better than other people because of my family's high moral standards. We don't cuss like that person does. We don't smoke or drink like those people. We don't watch filthy things on TV like those people. We don't dress immodestly, and we never miss church services. And those are all important things, certainly, in our service to the Lord, that we maintain purity and holiness. But they didn't free me from being enslaved to the bondage of secret sin. And one of the hardest things for me in surrendering my life in obedience to Christ was acknowledging that I was just as broken as everyone else. That I was a filthy and rebellious sinner in desperate need of a savior. Brethren, baptism is not something that good people do. Baptism is something that bad people do to become good. We need to make sure as the gospel comes to us that we don't consider ourselves to be so close to it that it doesn't actually require any radical change on our part, that we end up being offended by what it actually exposes that we truly are. As long as I'm keeping up a charade of self-righteous pride, I can never be who God wants me to be. I think pride not only blinds us to our true condition before God, it blinds us to the greatness of the gospel itself. Think about it this way. Um, if you're on a road trip and you stop at a gas station and you go in and you see a bunch of bottled water, I don't know about you, but the last thing I would consider doing is paying <laughs> a price like that to, to get a bottle of water that I can you know, get out of the faucet, right? But what if you're in the middle of the desert for days on end and you are on the brink of dehydration and sunstroke and all of a sudden you see a bottle of water? How much would you be willing to pay for that? I'd be willing to pay my last cent so that I could have that water, so that I could survive. The value that we place on that water is dependent on how we see ourselves, what situation we see ourselves in. And for many people, the gospel doesn't have the significance, doesn't have the greatness that it should because we're not viewing ourselves the way we truly are. Here the Pharisees failed to see the greatness of what was before them because they didn't see their need for it. We, we don't emphasize grace by minimizing sin. We emphasize grace by showing sin for what it truly is, by seeing our true condition, seeing what it is that we deserve. Perhaps if we can put ourselves in the shoes of the people of Nineveh, in the shoes of the Queen of Sheba, uh, for a moment it would help. Perhaps if for once we could try to hear the gospel as if it were the first time we were hearing it and let every word sink in. You know, even in our culture, the, the message of Jesus, 
uh, of the cross, of the resurrection, is something that many people have heard time and time and time again. And so when we hear it again, it, it's like, well, I, just like that, that water in the, the gas station, I've, I've drunk that a hundred times. It's no big deal. But do we really recognize the greatness of the message? Have we become desensitized to the greatness of Jesus and what he provides for us? God, the creator of the universe, the almighty and sovereign king, so loved the world, this broken world that had rebelled against him, had ruined his perfect creation, had marred his perfect image within them. He loved them so much that he gave his only begotten son. That Jesus took on flesh, experienced need, experienced suffering, was rejected and mocked and ultimately crucified in the most shameful and excruciating death possible. So that whoever believes in him, whoever responds in faith, should not perish, even though that's exactly what we deserve but that we could have everlasting life. In the presence of our almighty creator, the source of all good things forevermore. Brethren, there is no better message that could ever be given than that. Human language does not do it justice. Let us take the time to appreciate the greatness of the gospel, the greatness of what Jesus has done on our behalf. It's interesting here in the context of Matthew chapter 12. Earlier in Matthew chapter 12 in verse 6, when talking about the Sabbath, Jesus says in verse 6, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. Now, in our passage for today, he tells them in verse 41, something greater than Jonah is here. And once again, in talking about the Queen of Sheba, he says something greater than Solomon is here. Do you notice what he's doing there? He's the greatest priest, the greatest prophet, the greatest king imaginable. Brethren, that is our Savior, who intercedes for us before the Lord, who is the word of God, showing us perfectly his character and his will who has all authority in heaven and on earth, the king of kings. But you'll notice this discourse continues into 43 through 45. In Matthew 12, verse 43 through 45, he continues by saying, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. Remember at the beginning of this discourse, he said, uh, evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Well, now he concludes this message by telling them this parable. A parable to this evil generation. Well, what's the point? Why why does he all of a sudden start talking about this uh, man who has had a demon cast out of him and yet remains empty? 
I think in context, the Pharisees had taken great pains to cleanse themselves of every defilement of the flesh. The Jewish people as a nation had uh, tried very hard to make sure that all idolatry, the primary snare that had taken them into captivity, was taken fully out of their culture. However, they remained vacant. They remained empty. And as the Messiah is now coming and seeking to dwell within their hearts and in their lives, as the Spirit is coming to dwell within them, they reject him, leaving their hearts empty for a worse wickedness to come and abide within them. This goes along with the previous context of Matthew 12, when Jesus had cast out the demon and they accused him of casting out the demon by the power of Beelzebul. Uh, And that's the context in which Jesus warns them uh, that if they blaspheme against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven them. But if they blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven them in this age or the age to come. Well, what what is he talking about there? Is the Holy Spirit somehow more important than Jesus? And and blaspheming the Holy Spirit is just a a worse thing because he's greater? Certainly not. I think the, the point here is that even if they reject Jesus in the here and now, prior to the sign of Jonah, they're going to have further opportunity when the Spirit comes. And yet, if they reject the Spirit... There is no further message, no further indwelling that is going to to bring them back from where they are. If they blaspheme against the Spirit, then they have shown their hearts to be so hard that there is no opportunity for repentance, ultimately no opportunity for forgiveness. So the question for us is, is Jesus residing within our hearts? You know, the greatest message ever given can't just be accepted or acknowledged and left at that. It must be allowed to take up residence in our hearts and transform us. Maybe the reason the gospel seems so bland and lifeless to us is because we haven't begun to truly live it. The living and powerful word of God hasn't gotten off the page and into our hearts and into our life, permeating every aspect of our being, touching every facet of our lives. If we allow God's word, if we allow Jesus, if we allow his spirit to truly come into our hearts and abide in our lives and transform who we are, then we'll see the true greatness of the gospel. The question is not just, do you believe in Jesus? The question is, is he living in you? Jesus didn't come to earth to suffer and bleed and die so that you could have a more pleasant and enjoyable and successful life here in this broken world. He came so that you could die to self and to this futile existence once and for all and live a transformed life for him instead. A life that will last beyond the pain and suffering and sacrifice you experience in the here and now. Are you living that life today? Can you say that Jesus is living in you? Can you say with Paul in Galatians 2.20 that it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me? If not, then you have not yet seen the true power of the gospel. 
Are you willing today to surrender self? Jesus has the living water that can satisfy your thirsty soul. Are you willing to drink it today? If not, Satan is eager to take up residence in your heart once again. He's eager to claim you as his own. Don't leave here today with a vacancy in your heart for him to take advantage of. The gospel is the greatest message that could ever be given. That God himself was willing, out of his love for a broken and rebellious creation, to come down to take on flesh, to sacrifice himself so that we could be saved. Do you have that hope today? If you need to confess your sins, uh, to confess your belief in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, who is raised from the dead, you today can put your old life of sin behind you. You can bury self in the waters of baptism. You can be raised to walk a new life, a life that will last unto eternity. Do you need to make that commitment today? Or maybe you've made that commitment, but Jesus isn't truly living inside your heart. If you need to repent, need to confess some sin before these brethren, the reason that we're here is so that we can help one another in our service to the Lord. We want more than anything else in this world to be who God wants us to be. That's what we want for you too. If there's any way that we can help you in your relationship with the Lord, we ask that you'll make it known at this time as we stand and sing together.